0: This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and as always, I'm joined by Diana Jochem and Robert Brokamp, personal finance experts here at the Motley Fool. And today we have a special guest. <laughs> it's Ron Lieber. He's a personal finance columnist for the New York Times, and he also he's also the author of the new book, The Opposite of Spoiled: Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Because who wouldn't want to do that? Thanks for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here in Fool Land.
0: Yay! Well, I'm going to set expectations a little bit here. Robert Brokamp, you have four children. That
1: I know of, yes.
0: I have one child. She's two. Um, You have... Ron, you have a child and another on the way. Uh
1: huh. We're talking to the kid in the womb about money already. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect.
0: Uh, And Diana, she sleeps soundly on a mattress full of money Mm -hmm. because. (laughs) As all the childless do.
2: Yes. I'm rich. I'll be able to retire. Yes. Your children will take care of me in my old age, right? That's true. Yes, absolutely.
3: Someone's got to pay that Social Security.
2: When you wrote
0: this book, I have this vision of you getting the inspiration where you're standing in line in a grocery store, and maybe there's this kid who's like rolling on the floor and having a fit, and be like, I want it, I want it, I want it. And I just imagine you being like, oh, hell no. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) That is not happening in my family. I'm going to get to the bottom of this.
1: Nope. Uh, No children were harmed in the production of this book. (laughs) It was not, in fact, inspired by any particular spoiled children. It really was parents turning to me almost out of desperation, uh, trying to figure out how to talk to their kids about money when the kids were asking really complicated questions at really young ages in ways that left the parents stumped and confused.
2: So, when did your child start asking questions about money that made you? start thinking along these lines. Yeah, our daughter was three, and
1: she wanted to oh, know... Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> three three years old, she know. wanted to know why we didn't have a summer house. Oh, uh, wait, it, you
3: don't have a summer house? Yeah. Oh. Which, you know, may
1: sound like a bratty <laughs> entitled question, but it was actually just it came from a place of pure curiosity. Because sure. we had been out for the weekend at somebody's place that they had rented for the summer. She didn't know that they were renting it. She thought that they had two homes. This was confusing to her. She wanted to know why we didn't have two homes, because it sure seemed to her, like having another home near a beach somewhere would be a fine thing for a three year old. And so she wanted to know, and that's her job, to figure out how the world works. And I was stumped.
0: And so that's nice that you're being honest about this. So you did not offer a good answer. You
1: I didn't have it. I didn't have any answer at all. I sat frozen in the front seat of the car. I sort of looked over at my <laughs> wife. She sort of raised her eyebrows as if to say wordlessly, "All right, Dr. Money, this is your moment."
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I have I have three sisters and two of them definitely
3: had much nicer bigger houses than we do. And we got that same question and it's tough to answer because you don't want to make yourself look bad. You don't want to look make them look bad and say something about, you know, past judgment on their Housing choices or anything like that. Uh, You don't want to pass judgment. No, I will. In my head, right now, I'm passing judgment on all of you. But (laughs) in front of my children, it's it's a difficult
2: discussion. Well, surely you could use like some like here's the Barbie dream house and there's Skipper dream house and (laughs) see, and then Ken's living in the garage off his parents' house. (laughs) We fall somewhere in between.
0: So, since having written the book, how would you go back and answer that question?
1: I would say to her, I would say to her three year old self, right? It has to be an answer that a three year old would understand, which makes it a little more complicated. I would say to her, you know what, Talia, we actually made a choice. If we wanted to have another house, we probably could, but that means we would have a smaller apartment. Maybe you would not have your own room when your sister comes, uh, and maybe we would not be able to send you to summer camp. And maybe we would live farther from the park that you love so much. And it might be harder for us to save enough money so that you can go to whatever college you want to. And that's a big goal that we have for you that someday you'll be able to do that. Um, so we've made a choice not to have another house. It's not because um, we don't want to, it's just that there are other things that we think are more important.
0: See? Look at that! That, that, was good. Was good. that was good. That was good. I'd buy a book. I don't want a summer home anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized
2: that. No, really Meanwhile, Talia to this day is going, man. When you drop that truth bomb on me, I'm, I'm angry now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I would trade the park. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, we manage to engineer things where you know we rent a, a pretty decent house on Cape Cod for a couple weeks each summer, and then we get ourselves invited to, or we just invite ourselves <laughs> to other people's summer homes, and you know that seems fine for now.
2: More life yes. lessons.
0: So, yeah. yeah, the moral of the story is: be careful about your friends. Choose your friends. That's right.
1: If family. you can't have it, make sure you're related to or friends with someone who does.
3: There yeah,
0: really
1: yeah. rich, really generous friends. That's yes. right.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, you, in your researching of the book, found that there are four um, things, signs, symptoms of uh, that leads to a spoiled child. Um, what are some of the, what are those four things? Let's just t- let's just talk about all four, <laughs> shall we? We have time.
1: Sure. Uh, so the the first one is um, families that have um, basically no rules at all. It's like utter anarchy, right? There's no expectations for the kids at all. They can more or less do as they please. Um, you know, that is kind of prime spoiled territory. Uh, number two is where you do have at least a couple of rules and there are absolutely no consequences for breaking them. and the kids, Know it right, so there might as well be no rules in that situation. So that's number two. Number three is parents who lavish time and attention on their kids, and not just like the normal amount. Um, not even as like, if
0: we know what like what is normal. Can you tell well, me that? Okay. <laughs> so, I feel like I'm already messing that up.
1: Right. So you know those parents that you know, and we all know them, um, where the kids are literally not allowed to fail where every bump in the road is smoothed over uh, so that the kids never experience a moment of pain or discomfort or confusion uh, or conflict. That's a problem, right? Uh, it's sort of uh, interesting. I, you know, I've been making the rounds the last couple of months since the book came out, and there are a whole bunch of um, parent speaker series all over the United States that you know bring in people like me to talk about various things. And um, the founder, the sort of proprietor of one of them, came to pick me up uh, in. Uh, I won't even say whether it was his or her. Uh, came to pick me up in its car, uh, <laughs> and the ch- one of the children was in the car, Uh-oh. and this parent would not let the child finish a sentence or. Uh, answer a question and kept jumping in to like sort of buff up uh the answer or remind the kid of like what the right answer was we were just like having a conversation here this is the person who's you know bringing in the speakers to try and kind of set right. everybody else straight maybe this person understood that there was an issue in their house but anyway yeah <laughs> you, you gotta let them fail um you 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 have to you know let them um, make mistakes and and work things out for themselves um otherwise you may well be spoiling them and then Number four is just having a huge pile of you know, material possessions or um, you know experiences, uh, really expensive ones, uh, that most other kids don't get to do, and not being uh, grateful for them or gracious uh, about them when they happen.
0: Now that we know what a spoiled child looks like, or what leads to a spoiled child, um, what, what is your solution? I don't want to give away the book, of course, but what is your next step for a parent? When it comes to de- despoiling your child,
2: is that the proper verbiage? Despoiled, no. <laughs> <Like laughs> whatever. Take, the, take them out of the freezer and thaw them. Freshen them up. Yes, freshen them up.
1: Well, I think the place you have to start is that. They have to stop getting everything that they want whenever they want it. Right? Um, it's good for kids to wait. It's good for kids to yearn. You know, people often ask me, well, you know, what's the right amount to set their allowance at? And you know, it differs for every family. Some family can't afford. Families can't afford to give very much away in allowance. But um, what I, the way I try to explain it to them is, I, I said, you know, sort of think about it qualitatively as opposed to quantitatively. You know, you you want the kid, you want to give the kid um, just enough so that they can get some of the things that they want, but not so much that they don't have to make a lot of really hard choices, so they don't feel pain and yearning and desire and envy even, because this is good. It's good to wait, it's good to be patient, and then you think really hard about which things are going to deliver the most happiness to you when you've actually saved up enough money for them.
2: You interviewed a lot of families for for this book, and a lot of this is about get your give your kids experience with money the give them the training wheels while they are under your watchful eye two parts to this question sorry the first is what what about the parents out there who say i don't know how to do this stuff i'm no good at managing our finances how am i going to teach my child that and then the second part is let's get down to brass tacks and tell us some practical ways to Teach our kids about money in the household, like what you should do.
1: Yeah. So, I, look, this is hard for all of us, me included. None of us are perfect. Um, you know, we have shame about whatever it is that we don't do well in our own financial lives, and everybody has something. So, you know, don't cut yourself down and think that you're not a worthy teacher. Um, the kids are looking up to you uh, no matter what. Um, and, you know, there's no time like the present to sort of shape yourself up, um, given that the Kid is or kids are taking it all in by osmosis, right? So this may be sort of shock therapy for you, or maybe just as simple as like a, you know, sort of see one, learn one, do one, teach one, right? Um, you know, you're learning it uh, as you go. You're frantically trying to kind of learn the lessons you can teach it to them. Um, you know, as far as the practicalities go, again, you know, allowance is. Uh, is a tool money's a tool for learning allowances for practice uh, try to think about it that way the same way you would as a book or art supplies or a musical instrument um, generally in families that are lucky enough to have more money than average the more of those tools of learning you know the better um, and as much as the family can afford they're usually willing to give so you know give your kids ever higher amounts of money within reason to practice you know they get the allowance for saving and spending and giving but maybe you hand over the clothing budget to them when they're not nine or ten. Maybe you bring them in on the family vacation planning. Maybe you turn over the electric bill or grocery shopping to them and you know, let them make some different choices uh, maybe than you would about um, how money gets saved or how money gets spent. Let them make terrible mistakes uh, so that, uh, first of all, for the sheer amusement value yeah. <laughs> um, of seeing how they screw it up because they'll mess it up in so many ways you might not imagine. Um, but, also, so that they can learn those lessons themselves um when the stakes are lower because they're still under your roof and yeah, you don't think necessarily that allowance should be tied to chores, correct, so explain that a little bit, please sure. The most basic and practical reason not to tie allowance to chores is that if you do, if you are giving money in exchange for chores, there will come a point, without a doubt, when your smart aleck child will fix you with a gaze and say, "You know what? I have enough money for now, so I'm not going to do the chores." Right. Or, or you ask them to do something in
3: addition to what they normally do, and they say, "Okay, well, how much are you going to pay me to do that?"
1: Right. And yeah. it's like, you know, do we want to make our family? Transactions into transactions? I mean, do we actually want it to be transactional or do we want it to be something else? Do we want these things that we do to be things that we do for one another because we're all members of the family and that's just what you do when you live there? And I understand that people want leverage. They want to be able to yank the allowance when the chores aren't done. I think you'll get much more uh, impact if you yank the things that they like to do the most, the screen time or the ride to soccer practice or whatever it is that the kid likes. Take that away and the chores will get done right quick. Yeah,
3: I have to say, my wife and I uh, disagreed about this when the kids were younger. She was much more of the, just have money go straight to their bank account every week and they could see it grow. And I was saying, They've got to do something for that money. So, thanks for for giving her another reason to say to me <laughs> I told you so,
2: <laughs> Ron Lieber.
1: Sorry.
3: Ron Lieber.
0: Ron also wants to get rid of the piggy bank. That's yeah. True. So, so I,
1: your wife doesn't have it all right, right? If 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 it goes straight to the bank, then it's then it's not visceral. They can't see it. They can't count it. They can't touch it. They can't pour it out. They can't take the giant jar and walk to the humane society or your church or whatever and dump it all out on the uh, desk of the you know shocked um, fundraising <laughs> professional there. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, get it's a t- receipt.
0: By the way, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, you Don't know,
1: it's it's totally delightful to do that. By the way, to have them take the money into whoever they want to give it to, um, you know, the organizations love it. The kids love it. It's it's you know, it makes the kids feel good. It's addictive. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of, of piggy banks because quite often they're opaque. You can't see through them. They have these little tiny slots. You've got to fold the dollars up into little squares and corners and. Um, there's inevitably not enough room. They're not divided into enough cylinders. I think you should take, you know, these kind of big old kind of rubber-made, you know, rice or flour bins, you know, that can hold like 32 ounces or something, and you know, let them keep the money in there. That can hold a year's worth of singles, and it gives kids a sense of accomplishment when that thing really gets stuffed, and they can see it in sort of ever increasing amounts inside, uh, you know, behind the clear plastic.
0: Not just one bin, but three bins.
1: Yes, three bins. I'm a big believer in the three jar method: save, spend, give. I like the fact that you know that's sort of a stand-in for the budgeting that adults do. But I also like that save, spend, and give is sort of a stand-in for all of the values that we're trying to imprint through these money conversations. Um, spending is about modesty and, and thrift and prudence, and saving is about patience and delayed gratification in a world that conspires against waiting and giving, the give jar, the charity jar, that's really about um, gratitude and, and, and generosity and you know what it means to throw the rope back for others.
0: And one of the points in your um, book that I really liked was how you talk about what we spend money on is what we value. So you talk about how your kids are watching everything you do and learning about money through what you do, but what you're spending your money on, whether it's clothes or experiences or charity, that's how your kids learn their values it's not just money
1: it's totally true you know as my friend carl richards puts it there's no better way to know what somebody stands for than to look at how they spend their time and look at how they spend their money and you know we went through this transparency exercise with our daughter last year with, with charity. And we put 100 black beans on the dining room table and we divided it up into piles. And we said, Talia, for every $100 that we give away, this is how we divide it. And we showed her what all the piles were and where the money goes. Um, and then we asked her you know, whether she agreed with that. Choice whether there were any piles that were missing, just because we felt like you know, she's part of the family. Um, what we give is and who we give to it has a direct connection to our values and the things that are important to us, and um, you know, it reflects on her too. So, you know, she ought to have a say in it, and so you know, she came up with a pile that did not exist that she thought should she wanted to give to the scholarship fund at her camp so we gave her a couple beans and she got to decide what to de-emphasize she picked which pile the beans would come from to make the new pile for the camp scholarship Aww. fund that's
0: cool but yeah. she's she's nine.
1: She is. Uh, she just turned nine, so we're going to give her another bean or two each and every year. Um, and you know, we expect that those conversations are going to grow more and more interesting and sophisticated as she gets smarter. Yeah. Um, and I imagine she's going to ask many more pointed questions about our own stupid choices or, or our blind spots. <laughs> right? right. Well,
2: yeah. So speaking of <coughs> transparency, you're all for it, but to a point, or how do you? What is age appropriate? What should you let your kids know about your own financial, your family's financial situation? And at what ages is that appropriate?
0: I I know you can't do this, but I want a chart where it says, like, 10 years. Here, do the bean exercise. 11 years. Give them the. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Do me a roadmap. 18 years. Have them rebalance your 401k. (laughs) Yeah.
1: uh, Look, we can can get that done in 60 seconds here, right?
0: Okay. Give me a piece of paper ready. You
1: want to make the scribble sounds? All right. Ages six to 10. Uh, You know, sort of straight up allowance, um, you know, ending with at age 10, uh, they get the clothing budget. They're starting to, you know, spend three digit amounts of money uh, by then. Um, Ages 10 to 14, that's household finance. So, age 10, groceries. Uh, Age 11, electric bill. Uh, Age 12, vacation budget. Age 13, home values, mortgages, you know, other monthly bills. And then 14 to 16, that's the discretion test, where you remind them that, yes, you are going to tell them how much money you make and what your net worth is, but only when they've proven themselves to be discreet, because that's the only moment at which they're ready, when they're not telling other people uh, friends' secrets or reading their siblings' diaries or being a tattletale. right? Um, And then, and only then at the age of 17 or so, uh, are they ready. At which point, you remind them that this information really is not useful outside uh, of the family. And if they do talk about it, uh, they're going to sound like a jerk. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, no kid wants to flunk the discretion test. No kid wants to flunk the jerk test. They don't want to disappoint their parents. By then, they're ready. And really, we should tell them by then, because they're making really big decisions about college and how much to spend and what they might want to do for a living. They should know what it takes to financially to provide whatever life you've been able
2: to provide for them.
0: I remember being in college and not really understanding the value of a beer and being like, oh my gosh, this is expensive. I had no idea. You
2: didn't have quarter draws
1: well, like we did. it? Until and after. Your parents never bought you beer. No, it, wasn't, it
0: wasn't until after school. Like we lived in we lived in Walla Walla, Washington, and you can get very good beer in Walla Walla, Washington. So I grew up drinking like Black Porter while everyone else was drinking Bud Light and like I don't know what else in college. You didn't drink Oli? No, I should have. Well, no, because I was like, whatever, it's money.
1: Uh-huh. It's groceries. Uh-huh.
0: And then when I graduated from college and I'm working and working stiff, I'm like. Uh. Push, you know, counting my pennies to buy like a picture of, you know, I don't know.
1: My dad ran the Olympia distributorship in the Chicagoland area, so I knew all about beer.
0: My my uncle loves Oli. Yeah, he was. An it's a,
1: you can still get it there, right?
0: Probably. Yeah. yeah. But, Hams. Hams was another big big beer uh-huh. back then from the land of sky blue water. Yeah. And an Olympia <laughs> is sweet Um
1: <laughs> It's the water.
0: It's it's the water people. Yeah. It's the water. <laughs>
1: Isn't that that it? It's the water?
0: Because I had a pretty picture of Uh a mountain, whatever. Uh, uh, (laughs) This is perfect. This is totally what I wanted. A conversation about beer and a mapped out next Mm -hmm. 18 years of discussions with my daughter.
3: In your book, you wrote about Scott Parker, the guy who went to the bank and got out his monthly salary in dollar bills. That really happened? He went to the bank got $12,000 in dollar bills and brought it home? We do not make stuff
1: up
2: in the New York Times, <laughs> and I do not make stuff up in how my books. Dare you? How dare okay, now you, now, now you have to now you have to explain yeah, the story. Tell the, how story. tell the story a little
1: better. All right. So Scott Parker, uh, living in California at the time, house full of kids, uh, decides that they aren't really kind of square enough about how all uh, of the money flows in, and the money flows out. He comes home one day uh, with ten dollars or $12,000, his monthly salary, in singles, <laughs> and he dumps it all out on the kitchen table, and the room falls silent, and all the kids gather around, they get very excited. And Then he starts peeling off the bills and making piles for taxes and for mortgage and for Boy Scouts and for groceries and for the weekly pizza night and for their tithe to the church and for savings. And before too long, there's really not very much money left at all. Turns out Scott was sort of annoyed that his parents had never explained any of this stuff to him, uh, and he was also starting to get a little bit annoyed at you know how kind of blithely his kids kind of went uh, about living their lives without any real knowledge of kind of what it took uh, financially uh, to make it all happen for them. And so he just decided he was going to show them. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a great story. Amazing. Um, and it, and okay.
1: by the way,
3: it didn't take a day or two for the for him to get it from the bank because they didn't. They didn't have that much cash lying around or something like that. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I know you can't just like show up at a bank these days and ask for $10,000 in singles. I mean, they barely keep any money around at all. Yeah. So,
2: I want to see did he put it in a duffel bag? I have some practical questions here. Number one Floyd Mayweather would be able yes. to answer. Yes. Duffel, <laughs> duffel bag, briefcase. Did they rubber band the money together? How, what did he do with it afterwards? Did he try to pay his mortgage with single dollar bills? Do yeah. you, he obviously FedEx that and then you insure it? Do you, uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, un- unmarked. <laughs>
1: unmarked canvas bag yeah, yeah. Um, okay. and it was wrapped in bands not in not in rubber bands but in those okay. sort of like white mm-hmm. bands that you um, I think in100 in dollars stacks uh, and then he took it all
2: back gotcha. I I the, and they had to count in front of him right <laughs> they charge <restocking>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the restocking one single <laughs> one out of every, out of every bin. well before
0: we go I want to talk about one last thing that you you put a really fine point on in your book and that's the importance of gratitude. Can you talk a little bit about how you bring gra- the importance of gratitude, one, and also how you bring gratitude into your daily life and make it matter?
1: Sure. There are a whole bunch of social scientists who have looked at this very closely and determined that regular gratitude rituals can make a huge impact on our mental health and on our physical health, even. Um, And it's true for kids and it's true for grownups. So, you know, I have my own gratitude ritual that I do when the subway is coming each day, when it's pulling into the station, uh, you know, where I think about the Three things that were most awesome in the last twenty-four hours, and you know, just uh, have a little conversation with myself to remind myself that I was lucky that those things happened. Um, with a kid. Um, you know, you can do it in all sorts of ways. Some of the experiments that people may have seen uh, on video on the internet is where a, a kid writes a letter to somebody who has been really important to them, and then calls them on the phone and reads them the letter. You know, and everybody bursts into tears, and you burst into tears, <laughs> and <laughs> then it goes viral, and there's you know, 10 million ads that are viewed, and and you know, and everybody's the happy. And a book deal and a TED and talk, all of that. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, if you want to do the non-video version in your own house, um, you can do it around the breakfast table or around the dinner table or whenever any Everybody manages to gather. And it can be a grace ritual if you are people of faith and if you're a godless family, that's cool too. No sin there. Um, you can just raise your glasses, uh, Olympia beer or not, uh, <laughs> uh, glasses of milk, whatever, and give toasts. You know, slosh the glasses together, make the water and the milk spill all over the place, um, and uh, give a toast to whatever or whoever uh, made you happy in the last 24 hours. If you do that enough, You start focusing more on the things that you have, and not quite so much maybe on the things that you want that may you know stay out of reach for a little bit while.
0: My mom's gonna love hearing that because even to this day, like literally last month, she sent me an email. She said, "Remember that professor you had in college? I'm I'm 36 years old by the way, so this was and you were drunk, yeah, (laughs) and I was on drinking black beet porter." you had in college. You should send her an email and send her, write her a letter and tell her how much she meant to you. <laughs> like it wasn't that. Would that be a nice thing? It's like here is what you should do. And I was like I couldn't even remember the woman's name. I was like I think I know what professor you are talking about. So you and my mom. You you got it all figured out. I should have done it.
1: I do that a lot more than I did a couple of years ago when I first learned about the gratitude research. And it means so much to people when you do that. And it really does not take very long. You can do it while you're waiting for the train. You can do it while you're waiting for the plane to take off. You can do it, um, you know, you can do one note for 60 seconds right before you go to bed every night. Uh, You know, spread that gratitude around. It makes a difference.
0: Diana, what's one thing you're... Grateful for today,
2: you guys. I, oh, oh my, and, the, and no, I'm not just pandering. I always love our conversations, and we get the great Ron Lieber with us today.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love you guys. I love you too. <laughs> I love you too, Robert, what do you? Th- what's one thing you're grateful for? Top that. For? No, I'm Wait, <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, a tough I really one. like donuts
3: uh. and <laughs> I was home in Florida this past week talking with my sisters, and we actually talked about some of the favorite teachers we had. So I know it's cheesy because I used to be a teacher, but I really am thankful. I'd like to call my English teacher Anita Hankey, taught me how to write, and
2: our science teacher Dan Noyes, who is also our track coach. Oh, well, that's cool. Aww. Yeah, he was yeah. A great do you know guy. what? Shout out to Mrs. Wheeler from Broken Arrow Elementary School in Lawrence, Kansas. Aww. She was very encouraging of my writing at a young age, and look where
0: it took you. Yeah, to this.
2: Podcast. <laughs>
3: On the flip side of it, my mom pulled out a plate that I had made in kindergarten and I had spelled my name wrong. I spelled it Robertette. And the teacher said, "Oh, you spelled your name wrong again. And that's the only thing I remember about that teacher. She made me feel bad about myself. Oh. So teachers, listen up. They'll remember your bad words.
0: All right, then my gratitude is going to go out to my eighth grade teacher, Mark Quinn. He was a great, amazing teacher and I have not kept in touch, but he was a good guy. So Mark Quinn, Thanks for being a great teacher. Thanks to everyone else. What did he teach? Just it was just eighth grade. Like it was just everything. He taught everything.
2: Did you go to a one-room schoolhouse or something? <laughs> <laughs> you're saying that in yes, Idaho, yes. they only have
3: three <laughs> schools.
0: No, it was a it was a very small school. It was a very very small little religious school, and so you, I graduated eighth grade with about twenty kids, and we were all in the same room together.
2: I I'm just picturing a little house on the prairie right now.
0: No, it was not as exciting as Little House on the Prairie.
2: You didn't wear pinafores and bonnets?
0: No, no. But I was very cute.
2: I'm sure you were, and you still
3: are.
0: Hey, thanks. You're
3: welcome. It's hard work being a teacher. I'm sure they would love getting an email from someone they taught 20 years ago saying, like, hey, I remember that you did this, it was awesome, and I appreciate that you did that. Yeah. I, th- I think I'm going to do that. Actually, I yeah.
1: invite all of my teachers to all of my book parties, and they are so stoked to be Aww. there. That's yeah. awesome.
0: I knew you when, little Ronnie. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> look, I mean, they really, they
1: really had a lot to do with yeah. it. So, yeah. you know, they, you know, they're happy, but they, you know, they also, you know, they also feel like they did something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and they well-
0: did. I'm thankful for you, Ron Lieber, for joining us today. Thanks so much for hopping on our podcast. And I'm also thankful for Dion
3: and Robert. Yeah, yeah, no, oh. yeah, no, no, no. And Rick. We're most thankful for Rick. We're most thankful for And the Rick. internet. Thank you, internet. All
0: right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, listeners. <laughs> We got a lot of great advice from Ron, but we wanted more! So, we asked a few Fools for their best piece of advice that they've received about money, and we're going to cover it in this week's episode of Ask a Fool. Hi, I'm Kate Herman. I uh, handle internal communications and member events here at The Motley Fool. And some of the best financial advice my family ever gave me was to not ever carry a credit card balance. I sleep really well at night knowing that never in my life have I carried a balance month to month. And it makes me happy to know that I don't spend money I don't have. Hi, I'm Lisa Fuentes. I work in office
1: operations and events. And when I was younger, my dad told me to save 10% of every check. And I've been doing it ever since.
2: My name is Nate Hall, and I am uh, an executive assistant at the Motley Fool. Uh, my father gave me this frank advice after my first teenage encounter with overdraft fees Never give banks a chance to mess with you or your money. Hi, uh,
1: this is Peter Varley, and uh, I'm one of the web developers here. Uh, instead of the best piece of advice, the worst piece of advice is to buy real estate when the market is booming. Don't do it.
0: Hi, my name is Jennifer Parker, and I'm the executive assistant to the co-founder at The Motley Fool. And the best piece of advice I've ever gotten for finances is to never lend money out that you can't live without. And if you do lend money, to think of it more as a quote-unquote gift so that if you don't get it back, you won't be upset. Hi, I'm Sarah Klieger and I work on internal communications at The Motley Fool and the best financial advice I ever got from my family was to start saving for retirement as early as possible. So I started in my 20s, which was great because now I have a leg up over all of my millennial friends. I want to thank Ron Lieber again for joining us. His book is The Opposite of Spoiled, and you can get it on Amazon and points elsewhere. You can also read his column at the New York Times or follow him on Twitter. He's at Ron Lieber, at R-O-N-L-I-E-B-E-R. Before we go, I want to give a thanks to Newton Tootin, who gave us our first review on Stitcher.
2: Thank you, Newton.
0: Thank you, Newton. He says that we are really educational, but hip and hilarious. It made Diana's week to be called hip. Or maybe it was the hilarious part. It was
2: both of the, It was the combination. It really did make Hip,
0: hilarious, and educational. Yeah. What no more could you want? Nothing. Nothing. So thanks, Newton Tootin. And uh, to you guys, thanks for all of your reviews and ratings. Please keep them coming. We truly appreciate them. And it helps us get promoted on iTunes. And that spreads us to other people. And it's great. And, and whatever. All right. The show is edited by Rick Engdahl. With theme music composed and performed by our own Diana Yoakum. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert and Diana, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on.